Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Also developing this election, an update to an important ballot proposition that we're following out of California. The voters there decided to approve Prop 22, which would allow Uber, Lyft, and other gig economy companies to classify workers as independent contractors instead of employees. These companies said that it would threaten their business model and raise prices for consumers. For more on the most expensive ballot prop in history, we'll speak to Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times. Starts, I guess you can look at AB5 as one place, but even before that, the California Supreme Court adopted a new way to consider whether workers should be independent contractors or official employees of a company. And it paved the way for AB5. So the California legislature in 2019 adopted AB5. And that, again, like you mentioned, posed some threats to this app-based economy with, you know, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and some of the others really worried about how it could affect their business model. So out of that, there were some attempts to get an exemption by the company, so to work with the legislature and try to negotiate a way for them to be able to keep uh, their employees as independent contractors. Those negotiations didn't materialize and didn't work out. And so then you saw these companies turn to the ballot. And one of the most striking things about this measure is the amount of money that they put into it. Again, you talk about, you know, a California record. It's also a U.S. record. There's $204 million at last count. And, you know, that's a lot of money. So they were able to connect with voters in ways also that we haven't really seen before. You know, they connected via traditional advertisements, but then things like in-app advertisements and communications to their customers and their drivers. So, you know, it was, a, it was you know, kind of a, a new paradigm shift in California. Right. And we're talking about the biggest companies in all this. Uber and Lyft get a lot of the name recognition, but DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart were also all part of this. And as you mentioned, you know, if you opened up your app throughout this whole election cycle, you would get a notification, you know, saying Prop 22, know the facts about it, all that stuff. So it was definitely, like you said, this kind of direct messaging with the voters out there. So what does Prop 22 actually do? Because it's going to let them still be independent contractors, but it is going to provide other protections for them. Right. It allows them to remain independent contractors and have the flexibility that comes with that in terms of their work schedules, you know, kind of turning on the app when you want to. It also provides benefits to some extent, but a lesser set of benefits than they would have gotten under AB5. Part of what the opposition argued with that is that a lot of the time, the hours are gauged on when you are driving to pick up a ride. So once you accept a ride, you drive to it, and then you're either driving, dropping somebody off, or dropping off a delivery. So there's a lot of hours in between or time in between when you're waiting that isn't calculated towards, you know, those hourly wage requirements and the other benefits that were offered under the proposition. So you do get some benefits, but again, not quite what you would have gotten otherwise. Yeah, it says, I guess they're receiving like a stipend to purchase health insurance coverage. And it depends. You've got to at least drive 15 hours a week. I guess that stipend grows if you're working 25 hours or more a week. But you're right. There's this little downtime in between where you're not getting credit for all of that. And then, you know, what if you work 25 hours one week, then you don't another week? So these averages, I guess, is where you're playing with. Right. You're playing with that. And then, you know, there's some studies that say a lot of workers wouldn't qualify for these benefits. And so there's the opportunity for the benefits, but it's unclear at this point 
for us to know exactly how many people will have access to those. So Prop 22 makes exemptions now for these gig app workers. AB5 is still in effect, though. Who does that cover now? AB5 covers many industries that were not included in exemptions. So different industries came and made the case to the legislature as why AB5 shouldn't apply to their business model. And in some of those instances, they were granted exemptions and others they were not. So it's a wide range of companies that would have to apply to AB5, which Uber and Lyft would have largely been been required to unless they hadn't pushed this measure in one. And for Uber and Lyft and all these other companies, they were saying that obviously the drivers want the flexibility to determine their own schedules, but Customers would have also faced higher prices because of everything that comes with having an employee, all the health insurance and all that stuff. And even the California Legislative Analyst Office said that these protections and benefits make about 20% of an employee's cost for companies. So there could possibly have been increases in the cost of services for customers and all that. So, I mean, there's a lot at play with all of this. There is a lot at play in this. And to some degree, it would make sense that if you're having to hire people full time, you wouldn't be able to have as much flexibility and you would want to keep people in areas where you can guarantee there would be work, right? So in some rural areas or smaller cities, it might not make sense for the companies to staff employees out there to be available and to pick up these rides. So for that, in terms of that, it makes sense why we would see some of these services be limited to different areas in terms of, you know, the flexibility to determine your own schedules. You know, it's, again, a question of whether of demand and supply and wanting to make sure that they have people available to pick up rides, but not wanting to put so many people on the job at a time that, you know, it doesn't make sense to pay these workers full time if they're not actually driving. So it would have created some challenges for the companies to overcome. But again, you know, AB5 didn't do any of that in and of itself. It more would have been the company's reaction to AB5 and what they would have had to do to kind of sustain their business model. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, California is a huge state. These companies are huge. A lot of them are headquartered in California. And it'll just be interesting to see if other states, you know, adopt similar rules or regulations like that. Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And now on the pandemic side of things, when the lockdowns were first put in place, there were tons of stories of pets being adopted and a boon for the pet care industry. But now, as the pandemic wears on and we see job losses and reduced wages, we're seeing a growing number of people having to surrender their pets to shelters or sanctuaries. For more on how it's getting tougher for some people to care for their pets, we'll speak to Brent Scrotenbohr, reporter at USA Today. Because of the economy and the shutdowns and and people um, having reduced wages or lost jobs, there are people that have struggled financially to pay bills, including pet bills. And that can be everything from dog food and veterinarian care to being able to have a roof over your head. We're going into a period now where a lot of people are uncertain about paying the rent. There's been a moratorium on evictions that is going to run out soon. Uh, Congress has stalled on adding additional relief for people who are struggling during this pandemic. And one of the consequences of that, one of the many consequences of that is people are thinking about or have thought about or have even surrendered their pet already. And because they're just looking at it as just cost reduction or just a reality, the reality of a few can't pay your rent and 
have to move in with a friend or a family, you can't keep your pet. And so they've had to surrender them. And we've seen an uptick in that at various places. The Humane Society of the United States has estimated as well that based on the risk of eviction in the coming months with so many people, that there could be as many as 10 or 11 million pets at risk of being surrendered just because of everything that's happening. And then talking about the the pets that are most at risk for all of this are, you know, the older pets, uh, ones that need a lot more extra care and attention. So unfortunately, those are at higher risk and then harder to find places for as well. Exactly. Uh, Senior dogs, in particular senior pets, uh, they require more care, as you mentioned, and they're also harder to find spots for, like not many people who are looking to adopt a dog or any kind of pet want to adopt a senior dog. They usually want to adopt a younger dog or a puppy because it has obviously a longer life and, and senior dogs, you know, they might have a few years left, unfortunately. And so that makes senior dogs and pets more at risk in a situation like this, uh, just because of the cost and, and the likelihood of finding uh, somebody else to take care of that dog and take on that expense. Fortunately, there are organizations that specialize and focus on senior dogs in the situation, senior dog sanctuaries. If you know anybody that has a senior dog and can't afford it anymore, that that is the best route to take for a senior pet as a senior pet sanctuary where they focus on, they're usually almost all nonprofits and they focus on this as their mission to keep these uh, beloved pets away from shelters where they might be euthanized just because of their age and the, the expense of their care. There are sanctuaries that uh, are an alternative for that situation and help them find uh, a new new owner and in the meantime, better personalized care. Yeah, I mean, it's important to know the options that you just don't always have to go to a shelter right away, that there are some of these sanctuaries that can help out. And uh, one that you profile in, in uh your article is Lily's Legacy, which is uh, takes care of older dogs as well. So that's really good news. The dog economy is still kind of booming, uh, you know, from everything from people buying uh, accessories and stuff for their pets. Uh, even uh, trips to the veterinarian are also on the uptick. So tell me a little bit about the, the economy and how that's doing still. For those that are better off in the economy, uh, they've They've noticed, uh, at least early on in the pandemic, that they're at home more, they're working from home. And one of the costs of that or one of the downsides of working from home for people who are new to that is it can be very lonely at home during the day. And for those who didn't have pets, they looked at adopting and they did adopt. And also, because they were home more, they could take care of the pet all day long instead of like having to leave eight hours a day, they were available to take care of their pet all day long. And so they were, that availability and being at home, being lonely, it created this environment situation where there a lot of dogs and pets found homes uh, during the pandemic. Foster pets, people like a lot of the shelters were closed or had restricted hours too, and they needed to find homes for those animals. So that led to a lot of foster situations where those animals found homes during the pandemic because of that. Another consequence of that is people spending more money, people who are adopting and fostering dogs and cats and other pets, uh, they're spending more money. Like everything from leashes to dog diapers, the sales went up during the pandemic and veterinary costs, as you mentioned, went up. So that that is a bright spot of the pandemic. There were more homes found for pets. A lot of people adopted, a lot of people fostered pets. 
But not everybody is in this same situation economically. So, you know, it's it's both. There's a situation where things are very good for dogs and pets and also where we're having this risk now where if people are evicted and can't afford to pay their bills, we're seeing some surrenders. So it's been a little bit of good and bad going on for dogs and pets and especially senior pets. Brent Scrotenbor, reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. And finally for this week, doctors are beginning to figure out why some people have long-term symptoms from COVID-19. Called post-acute COVID or chronic COVID, many are continuing to deal with symptoms for weeks or months after they were expected to recover. These symptoms can range from severe fatigue to brain fog to digestive problems and erratic heart rates. For more on what could be causing these long-term effects, we'll speak to Sumathi Reddy, the Your Health columnist at The Wall Street Journal. It's a really interesting phenomenon to have people who, in many cases, their sort of acute COVID, their initial COVID, isn't that bad. Not not everyone, but in, in just in many cases. So, you know, they're sick. They're sick for a couple of weeks. They think they've recovered or feel better. Only they haven't. So for some of them, they're developing new symptoms weeks later, and they, these symptoms will persist for months and some patients are going on for now six, seven, eight months and in others, um, they're actually getting worse. So what was sort of a mild case of COVID initially has now evolved into a sort of chronic condition where they're developing new and even worsening symptoms, you know, months later and really not getting any better. You spoke to a lot of people that are these long haulers that are experiencing these types of symptoms. And I think uh, one of the people you spoke to Put it best, and and I can just feel the frustration of it. They said, I feel like there has to be some sort of next step because I'm not ready to accept that this is my new reality. Basically, like, there has to be this point where I get over it. You know, it can't be like this forever. Um, in many cases, these are young and extremely healthy people. I mean, I've interviewed dozens of them over the past four months, and I've interviewed marathon runners. I've interviewed avid skiers, surfers. I mean, these are people who are extremely active and athletic beforehand. Again, that's not everyone, but it seems like a large percentage of them are. So to go from having no chronic conditions to being young and healthy and active to basically being debilitated to the point where, you know, a lot of them can't walk more than five blocks down the street or even at all without a wheelchair or a cane or something to support them. You know, it's quite life transforming and obviously extremely frustrating. Let's try to put some numbers to this. And, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. But there was a recent study of more than 4,000 COVID patients. And they found out that about 10% of those, they were 18 to 49, struggled with symptoms for four weeks after becoming sick. That's just one part of it. You know, there's people that are obviously experiencing things longer than that. Those numbers drop off. And the sort of the rough estimate that you get from a lot of different places is that this affects, this seems to affect about 10 to 15% of the population or at least those are the people that are still sick after a month. It's hard to know how many of them get better. I mean, according to that one sort of symptom tracker, it seemed to drop by about half so that by two months, uh, you had about four or 5% of people that were still sick. And then after three months, it was down to two to 3%. But there is a lot of criticism from sort of patient groups about that particular app, just because it's a daily app. So obviously some people, particularly if they're really sick, get sick of sort of logging on every day. They might just right. stop doing the app. That doesn't mean they're better or recovered, but it's translated that way. So it, it, probably those numbers are a very conservative estimate. 
there's other long-term symptoms associated with other viral outbreaks, things like SARS and MERS and, and all that. But what makes COVID different is all the different organs that it can affect. And the leading explanation for this, that doctors really think why people get affected in so many different ways and, and then get these longer symptoms, is that they think it has a lot to do with inflammation. Sort of the leading theory is that inflammation and possibly an, the body has an autoimmune response. So it's sort of attacking its own tissue and organ. That might be what's driving the damage. You know, it's also obviously under investigation and being researched, but it's unclear whether that's being driven by sort of viral fragments that are left in the body that aren't enough for anyone to be infectious, but that are triggering inflammation and sort of an autoimmune response, or if there's actual virus viral traces like actually lodged in a different part of the body that could be kind of reactivating almost like a dormant virus and causing symptoms. A lot of patients do complain of sort of like cyclical symptoms, like feeling better for a couple of weeks and then relapsing and feeling sick. So that sort of theory might jive with that. And you've been looking into this for a long time. Like you said, you've spoken to many people, even children that come down with COVID-19 in some cases are getting some longer term effects. A lot of that has to do with gastrointestinal stuff, headaches, shortness of breath, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is really all-consuming. I've talked to patients who have severe GI issues, severe cognitive issues, brain fog, rashes, hair loss, high, very high heart rate, just very multi-system symptoms. And, and one of the leading sort of theories is that these people are developing dysautonomia, which is sort of a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And it's an umbrella term, and it's commonly triggered by viruses. So not just COVID, but it's, it's triggered by influenza or SARS or other things. And it affects different organ systems. So it can affect your breathing, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your digestion. So that's some of these patients are starting to sort of get a diagnosed and treated for that. And so how are doctors trying to treat these other things? I mean, obviously, you have to wait for these symptoms to persist to actually start addressing it. But what are doctors figuring out? Like, what are they going to try to do with it? There's a lot of caution in how to treat this. Like I just mentioned dysautonomia. Dysautonomia, you know, it causes tachycardia, which is an erratic heart rate. But it's not, you don't have damage to your actual heart. The way you might treat something like dysautonomia would be really bad if you actually did have heart damage. So these patients have to undergo very careful evaluations. Like before you would treat dysautonomia, you'd want to get an echocardiogram or, or a cardiac MRI and make sure that person doesn't have myocarditis or some, you know, cardiac problem that's more cardiac in nature that would have to be treated differently. So there's a lot of tests and sort of ruling out of things, like to make sure there's no permanent sort of organ damage that's going on. And they are finding some sort of organ damage, but in a very small minority of patients. Best of luck to these people that do get these long-term symptoms, and hopefully doctors can get better at treating it. And, and you know, we're going through this. We're still learning constantly more things about COVID-19. So we'll see what happens. Sumathi Reddy, Wall Street Journal's Your Health columnist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.